1: Oh, hi. Hi, everybody. Hello. (laughs) And hi, Phil. Was I supposed to speak? No, no. Yes, you were, of course. (laughs) Well, I was kind of doing the thing where you pretend that you're kind of like, oh, didn't see you come in. Oh, hi! hi. You just called me
2: doing a podcast. How you are cause you?
1: Podcasting, as we always are doing in the podcast minds. and we're tired. No, listen, everybody. <laughs> Around listen. the clock, they don't let me sleep. We don't sleep. We we're generating ourselves for IAI, so we never have to actually make a podcast again. We just get that those sweet, sweet AI dollars. <clears throat> so, <sighs> it's late August. It's summer. We've just dropped about. 18 episodes of Die Hard on the Blank since we started doing the show in December and we're going to take a little break but because you're starved for our voices Phil what are we doing? We're going to re-release
2: the Origins of Die Hard episode which was one of our early episodes
1: Hi everybody it's Liam I'm interrupting the podcast because we forgot to include our customary tagline for each episode when we recorded. So here it is it's Rambo in a towering inferno. Okay, back to Phil and I. See you later. Not many people will have seen this, I think, because it,
2: it was most people saw Die Hard and then Roadhouse, and then they kind of skipped this one. It's not a clip show. I want to be very yeah. clear about that. It's not a clip.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's not a clip it's show. It's not a clip show. We
2: will be back. We will be... We will be back. But not many people um, actually are aware that we did this episode. So it's it's really interesting we get into the book that Die Hard was based on. Nothing lasts forever. We analyze that. We talk about how uh, the similarities, the differences, some of them are really fascinating. We talk about some of the films that have influenced Die Hard, such as Towering Inferno, First Blood, Taken A Pelham, 1, 2, 3. And uh, we also play the, the Die Hard games and the quizzes and all of the stuff that you've now come to expect. And and hopefully enjoy in the subsequent episode. So we're just taking uh, a one episode uh, break.
1: Here's a quick, um, I just thought, if I, if I may, just a quick double jeopardy trivia quiz for the audience. Ooh. Phil knows the answer, but Liam and Phil got together. I'm doing your voice. Oh, I Liam like it. Yeah, I got it. Got together to record this episode. How many times had they met before recording this episode in person? The answer Zero times, and that's the chemistry. That's what we have. Sometimes it just clicks. That will, they will, they won't, they they will. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I need to be stopped. Um, have a happy rest of your summer. Enjoy this episode. We will be having mojitos. We're fiends for mojitos. Bye, everybody. Enjoy the episode. Thanks, guys. Welcome back to the party, pals. This is Die Hard on a Blank, the podcast where we explore the influence of Die Hard on action cinema, one action movie at a time. I'm Liam Billingham, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Phil Gothorn. No relation. No relation. But Phil, I feel like we're more—it's less of a special agent Johnson, Agent Johnson, no relation thing than a Al Powell to your John McClain.
3: Right, right. We're we're bonding across the airwaves. You're uh, making fun of
1: my donut Twinkie habit. My Twinkie wrappers everywhere here. It's disgusting here. in here. It's just. Oh. And yet you're oddly
3: you're oddly lovable. Just like Al Powell. Yeah, there's
1: something charming and charismatic about me. It's yeah, great.
3: Yeah, it's great. very much so. So so we're we're into that dynamic. Um, it's,
1: it's feeling good. It's yeah, feeling good. Right. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna yeah. get really closer as. Yeah. Yeah. You get glass on Yeah, your feet. exactly. It's going to be great.
3: We'll start to, um, you know, uh, admit our vulnerabilities as time ty- as time goes on. So, um, <laughs> so, so last time we talked uh, our way through Die Hard, um, scene by scene, in our in our comprehensive analysis. Today we're going to do something um, slightly different. We're going to talk about um, Die Hard's DNA, the origins of Die Hard, the other um, movies and books and other elements that influenced Die Hard. And we're also going to talk about the the key elements that are critical to the success of any action movie. Um, the anatomy of an action movie, if you like, uh, which Die Hard illustrates perfectly. is like full marks in every
1: category. How many elements? I mean, the, yeah, this movie is sort of the uh, thesis of the show, right? So how many elements? What are the elements that uh, make an action movie?
3: So in my opinion, my humble opinion, the key elements are... Um, the don't hero. be so humble, Phil. Well, you know, it's
1: it's Phil... it's the default you setting. Don't have to I'm a Brit. What are you <laughs> We're not allowed to. to not can't. be. you yeah, can. You can't, you you can't, can't be, be proud, for sure. No, no, what, no. tell me what these six elements are.
3: Well, in uh, in my not so humble opinion, they are uh, the 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 hero, the villain, the premise, the ticking clock, the action, and the humor. And if and if you get all of those elements uh, with high scores, then I think you're onto, you're onto a winner and Die Hard, I would say, is pretty much full mark in of every the, category. Yeah, sort of
1: the, uh, the, uh, the, the OG, yeah. the, top, the top dog.
3: Yeah, it's sort of patient zero of this action movie genealogy I don't know if patient project. zero
1: is the language we want to use considering the past few years of our yeah, lives. Maybe not. Outbreak, good movie. <laughs> um, let's get right into it.
3: We want to move into a section Uh, that I'm calling Anatomy of an Action Movie, where we we talk about the key elements that I think are critical to the success of any action movie. How many are there? There are six that I have identified. Number one, the hero. Number two, the villain or villains. The premise, Okay. okay, the setup, the ticking clock. So that's like the thing that propels the story forward? The premise would be, yeah, like, you know, what's our launch pad for it? But, the, you know, we almost every action movie has some kind of ticking clock. So we should talk so about that. So is it that. like a
1: bus that can't go exactly. below 50, yeah, for example? Some, some
3: begin with the ticking clock or in this case, the ticking clock kind of towards the third act. Got it. Um, the action itself and the humor, you know, which I think is an important element. So why don't we start by talking about the hero and about what makes John McClane so appealing? Why has this character caught the public imagination?
1: I don't think you can dispute the importance of Bruce Willis in the part. I think he's just really likable and smart. I mean, that's the thing. He's like he's got street smarts, whatever mm. that means, right? And like Bruce Willis has a great as an actor always and maybe this is you know, I think it's hard to distinguish sometimes between Bruce Willis and John McClane. Bruce Willis and this character have like a great bullshit meter. I think they are a great sort of like our great entry point into the story because we are we like him for a myriad of reasons we've already listed. He he doesn't sit in the back of the limo. He is suspicious of all authority around him. He feels like a regular, a regular person, whatever that means. And part of that is just like you watch him thinking about the things he's thinking. And I feel like most of the time in the movie, I agree with his... Takes on it's also
3: interesting how he could be so, and this was unique in the in the climate of you know the rise of Stallone and Schwarzenegger and to some extent you know Chuck Norris and those type of action stars. This was unique at the time because there was a vulnerability and an everyman quality to this character. He wasn't a muscle bound Superman, right? You know, he was a regular guy and caught in the wrong place. Another thing, though, I think that's important to mention just about this is the is the blue collar thing, but when john McClane enters the building again this was just this is what we mm. talking about with nuance he gives the security guard the second one he gives him a little nod as he's walking through to the elevators and right. I, I was just thinking about that moment it's a not, it's a seemingly inconsequential moment but i was thinking like those are his guys. They're probably ex-cops, right. especially the older guy. Whereas when he goes upwards, ascends to the mm. the highfalutin executives and their cocaine and their materialism
1: and their questionable ethics, he does not get. He doesn't feel comfortable. He's a, right. he's a bit of a fish out of water. One one thing I thought you were going to mention, and I'm, I'm, is that when he walks into the building, he walks up to the reception desk and he says, "Hi, I'm here for Holly McLean." And the guy says, "Just punch it in on the computer screen there." And he kind of goes like if I'm kidding me, like I have to, punch. he goes and he's like sort of like hesitantly punching it in. Like this is a guy who's like, no, you just talk to a person and that person tells me where to go. Like that's a human interaction. And it feels like a part and parcel with the late eighties with like the rise of computing software and this kind of like stuff that we all take for granted now, digital life that like, he's a like, bit of talk, an anachronism. An anachronism. Yeah. And, but also I think him nodding at the security guard is a little bit like that's a human being, like yeah. the humanity in that. And yeah. like, no way, Ellis makes eye contact with the he reception person. He would see them person. as furniture. Yeah, exactly. You know, whereas and McLean I, sees them as people. And I think that that is—he's like a, he, in some weird way—and it feels a little antiquated. He says to Ellis, "I," you, you know, or he says, "Hans, this guy, this guy doesn't know who you who you are, but I do." Like he really is—he knows, he knows who not who not to trust. He knows who to trust. I mentioned this earlier. When he finally gets upstairs, he's so withholding to Takagi, who's like Takagi's being a nice guy like he's being welcoming like he knows there might be some tension between him and holly and like at one point he says to him like can i get you anything and McLean goes, "No, thank you. I'm fine." And there's so much like he puts resentment. the drink down as well. I think does he, he takes a sip of he's it? Kind of he's like, like, yeah, What's yeah. That? I, but I, I do that, love that he like way. takes this shitty cocktail and takes a sip and goes, "Nope, not yeah, for me." I've, right? I've never met a cocktail I didn't like. Yeah, and I I think that he just—it's
3: all illustrating how like Holly's probably financial situation and status is vastly superior to, right. to his. And it's make it's probably like. Um, Salt in the wound for him, right? You know, like oh, uh, look at all this opulence, and you know, so he is kind of coming in with his arms folded and being like, fuck "And he's these a flawed LA protagonist,
1: right? Like you, I mean, he's like you said before, like there's something a little caveman esque yep. about being like, my wife makes more money. He's than a bit me, chauvinistic, he, he, absolutely, it, right? totally. But I th- and I think that that is more interesting than an unkillable machine like schwarzenegger is in commando to some extent which by the way is not a diss of that movie in any way but like this movie and i, I gotta it doesn't gotta, exist
3: in the real world right, right? exactly but whereas Die Hard feels like it could exist in the real world albeit slightly heightened it's
1: all yeah. on a, it's all on
3: a sliding
2: scale but you're
1: still watching a, a movie about a guy surviving every second at, yeah. like at CO- like it really is a movie he's about flawed
3: he but we like him you right know?
1: and he's he has a bullshit meter yeah. that i think is really but it's strong. a good
3: it's a good yeah. point so, so that's our hero. Let's talk a little bit about the, vil, the villain, brackets, villains. Right. Why do we love Hans Gruber? Sub question, is Gruber the goat?
1: I was saying this um, to someone the other day. I think Alan Rickman is maybe the best part of this entire movie. I really, really think so. And, and I think that this relates to actually McClane and Hans are really, really similar guys. And I think that beyond their cunning and about their wit, I think they're similar because they have the same distrust of authority. I think, for all the reasons we labeled before, McLean looks at money and he looks at wealth and he goes like, oof, this is not my world. Whereas Hans is trying to take that wealth away from the people that have it. And also, I love so much how he has no beliefs. His beliefs are, I want to be rich, sitting on an island, earning 20 percent. Very 80s. Very, so it's incredibly 80s. 80s sensibility. And I feel like maybe in the 80s that was kind of scary, but now it's like kind of refreshing that this guy isn't like a zealot or a lunatic. And it's one know? of the
3: things that, you know, McTiernan adjusted about the character and we'll talk, we're going to get into the book and, and yeah. the Gruber character features in the book and actually is a, a zealot, you know, is, is like Bardem-Meinhof, right? Red Army type, has a very Specific political cause. Right. Were as, you know, McTieran making him this kind of 80s y- y- aspirational yuppie. Right. W- who was just like, yeah, you know what? Like, but he's also has a weird, like, it's almost satirizing the corporate culture because he's like, these bearer, I I I didn't know what bearer bonds were until recently.
1: No one does. They're okay. just an okay. 80s they're trope. So, they don't a, actually exist. Accept- and they're in heat. They're right. in heat, they're in heat in as well. Heat. They steal them from they're the truck. Are they in lethal weapon too? No, those are Krugerans. Kr- Krugerans. Right. Diplomatic
3: Kruger-ans. immunity. <laughs> Sorry if I just blew out the mic, <laughs> but I can't hear "Lethal Weapon." And not Where's that, that? gun from, South Africa? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, another future episode. Ugh, um, the best. But so the bearer bonds. But essentially, it's kind of like the crypto of its time, right? In the sense that they're untracked and it's basically shady. Right, you know, hence why in Heat they're stealing it from criminals and they try and sell it back to them because it's not something that has value in a conventional way. Right, Gruber knows that this company, and and again, this is the book leans into this a bit more, are uh, not an ethical company and are up to some pretty shady, right. shady shit. Even if Takagi seems, you know, somewhat of a noble and there's character. Pro,
1: there's a little bit of critique in that, and again, yes. it's the 1980s, it's the Wall Street era, like this sort of, and again. You know, this is why Willis is, I mean, sorry, McLean, same guy. Yeah, McLean is suspicious them, yeah. of this because I think he's just like, this is all bullshit. And I think that that's it's really- It's a house of cards, and there's right? a... Yeah. Again, it's that class rage that I think existed in that period. It's like, it always does. And I think like you can feel that in the movie totally. I think the other thing that is hard to deny, and I can't believe it is Alan Rickman's first movie, but they cast a Shakespearean actor- to deliver heightened dialogue, to give a speech about Takagi's history and be menacing. Like, it's a really strong use of a theater actor in a movie because Hans Gruber is a little theatrical at times, especially in those early moments when he's talking to Takagi and kind of, you know, trying to bring him in and gesture and, like, play this role of, like, I'm a terrorist
3: it's interesting you say that because now that I'm just it's just making me think about the idea of like street theatre, mm-hmm. you know, which is like a uh, a police, a kind of you know a principle of like undercover work or essentially you're create you're, you're acting in a theatrical way for you know a different agenda. And actually, a lot of the characters are playing roles at different times. And the, obviously, the Ellis scene there's right. an element of theatricality. To that. Hans is grandstanding right. uh, that Holly calls him out on later. He's trying to almost. Show to Takagi, like I'm a, I could be a corporate executive, totally. you know, like you. I'm smarter than you. I'm smarter than. And any he plays of you guys, having an ideology you know? at the
1: beginning of the movie. Yeah. He says like I forget exactly what he says, but then he says you'll all be witnesses. And he's it's almost
3: like, like a priest uh, yeah. sitting there with his book, you know, kind of
1: preaching to the right. You know, the, and you notice none of the other terrorists talk to the hostages beyond telling them to get yeah, back. Right. Like he really is the ringleader, and they sort of like position him as this suave figure who can talk to them. Which, by the way is a great contrast to Carl, who's a elegant bruiser, because Hans can't be the guy. He, I mean, in a fight with McLean, Hans physical, is, is going to get his ass yeah, kicked. Yeah, he's, right? he's not
3: physical. It's all intellectual. He doesn't you need know, to get his hands dirty. I, right. believe, I believe as well there was a version of it where the, the, the characters turned up um, they were in like overalls and stuff, and or in early iterations of the script. But I think Rickman lent into this idea of like, no, Hans Gruber doesn't get his hands dirty. He has minions yeah, exactly. to do things for him. We should be in suits, right? You know, or at least I should, because you know I'm not I'm not grubbing around and and
1: you know, there are interesting dichotomy. Do you know, that for me. Not to, to talk very briefly about the villains, right? Like you have Carl who's dressed all in black.
3: Well, let's to just frame this conversation, yes, if please. I may.
1: Who's your favorite terrorist? <laughs> <laughs> My favorite terrorist, it's a tie between Theo and Marco.
3: Mark, Marco the no more table. No more yeah, no yeah. more table.
1: Yeah, he's he I mean he what nailed. a psychopath.
3: He nails his scene. He's amazing. Know? Don't shoot! Right, 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 right. <laughs> That's oh. such a brilliant piece of, like, theater. Yeah. Because he's uh-huh. signaling his friend who's coming behind him, I'm about to be shot. You right, know? right, right. He's saying, don't shoot so that That moment Heinrich is so frenetic kind of, and scary, too, Yeah, it's right? a great moment. It's and a great movie. Drop the, drop the gun, motherfucker. You know, it's pretty um, intense. Yeah, no, I'm a big Fritz guy who's the guy with the— The, the long-haired the guy. The long hair. Kind of reminds me of Jonathan from Queer Eye, you know? <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> great. He's also hair. kind of, the, yeah, the
1: most 80s of the of the. It of feels the like
3: he's, he, you know, I imagine Fritz's backstory. He's like, look, I know we've got to go and do this Nakatomi thing, but I need to get the hair done first. I've I also got have good. an audition the next morning you know, like play yeah.
1: a, a bit he's, part. Well, he's a model. Movie, I imagine,
3: yeah. he's like, got a bit of modeling. I need to look good. You know, so he kind of looks like he just stepped out of the salon. So I think I, I've got shout out to Fritz. But for me, it is a Theo. like he's, Oh, he's, he's the just, best every scene just yeah as you said charisma to he's very
1: casual he's great great. he's also kind of establishes this thing that happened in the 80s where it's like whenever there was a group of like bad guys there was always the nerd
0: but Theo's
1: a cool nerd like one of my favorite little details is when the SWAT team is coming in he's you know quarterbacking it and telling them what to do and he's just kind of like chewing on some potato chips or something like that like it's one of my yeah, favorites you know, he's eating peanuts or something like there's just something really really it's cool. interesting you say cool. the quarterback
3: thing and he even says the quarterback is toast he's kind of like a, a defensive coordinator right exactly you know, that's he's, a better way to think he's about got it. the earpiece you know he's like calling the plays like this is what the offense are going to do this is how we're going to yeah, counter it's it so good it's, it's just brilliant and you, yeah he's like the hacker Kind of became a real a real trope in the '90s, yeah. and, and and has continued to this this day. And in fact, even Die Hard Four has a over hacker. It's about hacking, right? Um, so there's several hacker characters, but this is like a, one of the most original takes on a on a hacker. He
1: feels like a really established character, and you think he's going to be a bigger part of the movie than he ends up being because he plays such a big part early on in the movie. The other henchman that I have to do a shout out to, if only because of '80s action movie history, Aliong yes. as Uli, Al Leong... Also plays Endo in Lethal Weapon. The we would guy be who, remiss um, if
3: we didn't give him props.
1: Electrocutes Mel Gibson. Right. And also is in Big Trouble in Little China. So, like, three of the best action movies of the 80s by far and just, like, an, just an important guy, like, a, a quintessential... Oh, I recognize that guy. He also has the great moment where he is about, where the police are about to come in, as I recall, and he leans on the counter, and you realize he's at the, like, snack counter in the lobby, and he takes out a candy bar and starts eating it. I've always loved that moment. Again, it's these little that's what we're saying these tiny nuances the other
3: that are so entertaining you right. know and yes i i love that moment i know a lot of people do so so that's that's our villains covered and yes i i personally i do think it, i think gruber is the goat right. i actually think he is the greatest not certainly the greatest action movie villain right. um of all time there's there's some there's some great villains that we're going to Right. Talk through. But I also think he's in the argument for the greatest movie villain period.
1: I think he's out there. You yeah, know. for sure.
3: Let's talk about the 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 premise. This is something that we're going to be talking about a lot in the show. It you know, the show is called Die Hard on a Blank. In this movie, it's Die Hard in a skyscraper. Terrorist right. slash thieves sees a, a skyscraper. Why is that? Is that a strong setup? Or and if so, why? Like how, how do we feel about this? And in the pantheon of other Action.
1: like i think it works really well I, I was thinking about how like i don't think i personally have a strong geographic sense of the building i don't think you ever go oh i know what floor i'm on right now necessarily but i think that that's really powerful because there's something nightmarish about this building it's very very high in the air there's glass you can turn a corner and like a terrorist can be there these boardrooms are like just corporatized to all hell like there's a little bit of like style in the way that takagi has like certain things set up, but it feels very 80s and it feels very, like, again, aspirational and, like, doesn't feel like a place you'd want to hang out.
3: Yeah, the, you alluded to why this is a good is a good premise and scenario and, and situation or location, rather, for uh, an action movie. Yeah, there's a myriad of dangers in right. this play. It's contained, yet... You could fall out. You could fall off the roof. There's the the elevator shafts. You know, it, it, it's it's a good arena for lots for of ways mayhem. to die, and it, it definitely is night nightmarish. There's a sort of claustrophobic aspect right. which it leans into with the air shaft, uh, the air shaft sequences and so forth. So, I, I we'll talk about this in more detail with the mirror with how other movies later on whether their their scenarios succeeded or failed, whether it was a boat, a plane, a bus, what have you. I can't you. wait to talk about um, speed. I can't wait yes, to talk about uh, speed. Me, Me too. Oh, man.
1: The ticking clock. The ticking clock. What's the ticking clock in the case of this movie? So what what we have written down here is it's essentially the plot device, right? Right. So what's the ticking clock? So
3: I guess in this movie, that it's an interesting one, but I think the ticking clock only really kicks in in deep in the third act when they, with the realization that the the roof is wired with heavy explosives. So the ticking that clock- That ter- they're, the they're, they're going to
1: kill all they're the terrorists. The are going hostages. to kill all the hostages. They're going to
3: kill all the hostages. They're going to blow the roof. But also at that point, I think McLean knows that the, the helicopters are inbound. Right. So they are at risk.
1: Now we know they're going to do it, right? No, we or kind of don't.
3: Well, McLean. Re- I don't know if McLean knows the full end game of Gruber at that mm. point, but he definitely knows there is some kind of ruse at play because he says, it's a double cross, buh, 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 and then he's, and then he's yeah. intercepted. One thing so- that
1: our producer Mike pointed out earlier is that this is a great movie that screenplay wise from the perspective of we find things out before McLean does mm. like we find out that they're not terrorists but thieves earlier than he does we I feel like we kind of know they're going to blow the roof up because we see them setting up the debt or we know they're up there we know something's going on on the roof we might come to that realization at the exact same moment as him but it's a great movie in terms of dramatic irony you know things that the audience knows that that the characters don't, which like super Shakespearean, McTiernan's a Shakespearean, you know, guy, love Shakespeare, like the movie uses some of these things really to its advantage. We know Hans is Hans. McLean might not know Hans is Hans, right? We know all these sort of things that are interesting, that that add to the tension in the movie. We know Thornburg is going to their house. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's an
3: interesting one in that the ticking clock, like in other movies that we'll be talking about, Speed being being a great example, ticking clock is established very early on, right? It's essentially the central conceit of the movie. Right. The... Ticking clock is intrinsic to the central constituency. Or unstoppable.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. When it's going
3: to in, in unstoppable when it hits that curve, isn't it? That that's yeah. that's the point where the, you know. The, so whereas in, in Die Hard, actually, the ticking clock is is quite subtle and is right towards the end of uh, right right. Is that, well, the, tick- right at the end? we
1: are participating and trying to figure out like what's the twist in this movie? Yeah. What's the thing that's gonna?
3: It's an unusual use of this device. Yeah.
1: But again, it's dramatic. It's it's it's. I think it's McTiernan's. And listen, not just McTiernan, but like he's a dramatist. That's his his, his you know expertise.
3: So let's talk about the action. What is your favorite action sequence or or scene and why?
1: I'm gonna put this question back to you. Oh, okay. I wanna hear from you first. Cool.
3: For me, I mean, as as we talked about the 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 sort of the musical nature of it, the symphonic nature of it, I think a typical a great action movie should be topping itself constantly and this movie really does that. It's an amazing blueprint in that regard because sometimes you'll have have an action movie where the best sequences might be in the first act or in the first half or before the third act whereas actually the real classics, Aliens is another great example of a movie that continues to top itself. It's like set piece after set piece after set piece after set piece it also has a symphonic quality and the James Horner score in that movie is just unbelievable. So, So for me to that point even even though I love the SWAT assault, and that bringing the car. I love that whole uh, sequence. But for me, my favorite action sequence is the the, the, the helicopter the insertion ship. sequence. When you see those helicopters going down the street yeah. and that sound, yeah. you know, there's the something about amazing. that and how it builds and builds and builds to this confluence of circumstances where McLean is trying to get the hostages off the roof. We know it's going to blow. The FBI think he's a terrorist and they're pretty reckless anyway. So they're trying to kill him. So he's got nowhere to go. So if he stays on the roof, he'll either be shot or blown up. And then it all builds to this kind of climactic moment. So for me, that is my favorite action sequence. And I think in a great action movie, you want to save the best for last.
1: That's a great answer. And I think him jumping off the building is like, holy shit. And I also don't, I can't imagine what, like, where we are sort of spoiled with absolutely gonzo action movies now, you know. But I can't imagine what it was like in 1988 to be like, to see this movie and kind of go like, holy shit, they flew helicopters around downtown L.A. for an action. Like, we we all take it for granted now, but it had to have been amazing at the time.
3: And then finally on this, the anatomy of an action movie, the humor and how, impo- you know, I, I think humor is such an important element of action movies to diffuse uh, some of the, you know, the more serious moments. Yeah, because so-
1: there's some really dark moments in this movie. There's also some very funny moments, and there's some moments that are somewhere in the middle. Like, I have to say this is dark. The SWAT team writhing on the ground after the explosion is very, very, very funny. Because they're just all like, ah! And it's just like, and it's such a stupid plan. Like, yeah. this idea it's, is so it's stupid. Blunt. It's blunt force and again, trauma. It's, yeah, and yeah. this movie has a real distrust of these, like, yeah. the, the the police. It has a detrust, distrust of the FBI. Like, it's not, it, it never presents any of them as, like, valorous or moral it's sort of or anti-militaristic of in a it's way very or, or like anti-state
3: anti-state power yeah i like. totally
1: think so and i think the antithesis of that is personified in like al al is being the only sensible person on the ground is this like de- this like sort of like this beat cop driving around is the only regular guy. Like, there's no better condemnation of of the sort of state thing than the guy saying it's just like fucking Saigon. You're like, oh, my Authorization? God. Like, Authorization? How
3: about the United States fucking government? <laughs> yeah,
1: it's like, you're nuts. You're out of control. And <laughs> yeah. it's just very, like— It's again, like when it's, power wait...
3: goes to your head. Right. This, you make bad decisions. And know?
1: it's it's almost one thing that makes a more sympathetic character is you're like— The corporations in this movie suck. Like, it's all very fake. The cops all seem to be acting in these bizarre, brutal ways. The FBI is like, gonna, good, is comfortable losing 20, 25% of the hostages. Of course, Gruber's like, money. Desert Island, that's all I need, which is, you know, and McLean is just like, I don't want any of this either. I just, I want to be with my kids, you know? Like it really sets up this interesting dynamic in that sense. And
3: the the other moment that I wanted to say that just in that sequence that I love, the SWAT assault, is the moment where the cop gets his like arm Cut on like the a rose thorn. <laughs> <going or whatever. laughs> <laughs> what a brilliant moment. Yeah, of just I totally like forgot. Sort of like, Ooh, oh my ah! God, yeah, he
1: cuts his finger. Oh, it's so Fantastic. good. Meanwhile, McLean has glass up like, in his ass and he's he's still running he's like, around. Ah! Yes. Yeah, so it's so
3: delicate, this SWAT team. Uh, <laughs> a wonderful moment. Oh my um,
1: God. So, this episode's all about Die Hard. I think as part of talking about Die Hard, we should talk about the things that influenced Die Hard. Most obvious one is the fact that this is an adaptation of a book by Roderick Thorpe called Nothing Lasts Forever. I knew this exists. I've never read it. I briefly flirted with like getting it out of the library before we recorded. But truth be told, I didn't have time. I assume you've read it. I have read it. Yeah. How many times? Uh, only the once. That's disappointing to me, Phil. I thought we were going to be like, well, the 10th time I figured this out. I discovered this, new a-, a new detail. How is the book Nothing lasts forever different from the movie Die Hard. The main one I would
3: say just is the overall tone. The book is of its time in the sense of the cynical, paranoid thrillers of the 70s. It's almost more... In line with the spirit like of a parallax French. view. I was gonna say, Yeah, parallax view or the conversation, mm, the French conversation. connection. Nice. That that kind of that kind of bleak ending that's like ambiguous and you're not really sure how you feel about it. It's sort of more real life and messy and that kind of down, down vibe.
1: Does it have like the same is it McLean? Is McLean the character in it, or is he different? Is The character
3: similar? is called Joe Leland, okay. um, who is an ex cop turned security consultant. He's much older. He goes to the skyscraper, which in is in LA. Will, is it in, in L. In LA, on Wilshire, on Wilshire Boulevard, called Claxon Oil, and it's his daughter, not his wife. The 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 wife is actually is actually dead. She's called Karen, and he goes to see his daughter Stephanie Gennaro uh, for her Christmas party.
1: Oh, so she's taken her mom's. She has her mom's last name, not his name.
3: I actually, it's her married name. Ah, uh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so she's so, married. So she's married. So the set the setup and the basic kind of the skeleton of it, the infrastructure of the story, is very very close. But the attitude, the characters, some of the characters have remained. The ones that I was most most interested in were actually uh, the differences and the similarities, are, are is Dwayne Robinson and Al Powell. So. Dwayne Robinson does feature, and there's a wonderful um, quote where he describes, this This really speaks to the attitude, we were talking about the anti-authoritarian or anti-authority attitude. This is from the book. It says, civilization was full of Dwayne Robinsons, seeing everything that happened to them as opportunities for their own advancement and aggrandizement. They were the spoilers of society, with Richard Nixon being at the top of the list. See, this is, wow. The book is incredibly dark, and in particular, the ending, there's two elements of the ending that I thought were, were fascinating that really speak to the difference in kind of tonal approach. First is that in the final showdown, when Joe Joe Leland confronts Gruber, and the character is called Gruber, he's called Little Tony, Little Tony the Red, Anton Gruber. He's like, a, he is a radical leftist terrorist, so he does have a political agenda. When eventually it gets to the showdown, and uh, the watch is actually in there too. That's That, that device is set up. Gruber pulls his daughter off the building with him and show his daughter dies, Whew. which is a pretty heavy That's ending, a heavy ending. And very in keeping with this kind of like French Connection type vibe of like, oh, that's a steeply uncomfortable 70s feeling, which is not was not palatable in the 80s, right. especially for a summer blockbuster or really any movie. Right. Unless you want to say the original First Blood, where Rambo was supposed to die. But- um, Sounds they, like they, they like
1: sanded it. off some of the hard edges for the for the movie Absolutely. version. Absolutely, but it's but still there. It's the there big, in the yeah, DNA. But they,
3: they they certainly took the DNA. They certainly took the framework of it. But the other the other big um, difference that was fascinating to me was ju- that with Co- Carl comes back, the same thing happens. The same beat is played. But at this point, that Joe Leland is trying to make his way out of the building, it ends up being this messy showdown with Dwayne Robinson. And Al Powell pulls Dwayne Robinson into the line of fire. Carl kills Robinson, and then Al Powell shoots Carl, and then he tells Joe Leland, "Like, hey, just so we're clear, like Dwayne Robinson died as a hero." Ooh. So it has its man. What what's,
1: Roderick Thorpe okay? <laughs>
3: <laughs> what's the deal, hey, but Yeesh. It, I, tell, I will tell. It is a terrific book. It's a good book. It's it's like. I read it in two sittings. It it's short, it's lean, it's so hard boiled, it's crisp. It's it's a fantastic book, a great adventure story.
1: So, like, this is not the first appearance of Joe Leland in that's, a, that's in a right. book, right? That's Right.
3: So there was a previous book called The Detective that was made into a film with Frank Sinatra, where you meet Joe Leland and he's a detective in, in New York. I think The Detective, which is basically a meat and potatoes procedural for Frank, where he it's a more serious part. He was sold as an adult look at a police detective. Oh, interesting. It's it's similarly cynical and it's about him navigating the politics of New York Police Department and the politics of the city and trying to kind of walk a straight line in a crooked world. For me the way the best way I would say I would frame it is it's almost like John McClane's dad. You know, uh... he kind of plays like he he's a tough New York cop who doesn't play by the political rules and, and butts heads with his captain and that feels very McClane but the this this, so that's where maybe the DNA seeped in. but it, And also he's a second generation cop, he says. So there's a feeling like the lineage of being cops is part of uh, part of this whole tradition with the playing right. character and whatnot. And it was like passed on father to son.
1: How old was for Sinatra when he was in The Detective? Probably- It was 68 so, when the
3: movie was made. So geez. he's probably- 40s, yeah, I would guess. I would like,
1: say. like mid to late 40s. Yeah. I bring that up only because- he was offered or had to be contractually offered the part in Die Hard. That's right. And, to play and John McClane in his 60s. That's
3: right. Because the character in the book was, was, was originally older, but he, Frank Sinatra said, quote, I'm too old and too rich. So Good he, he let everybody off the hook. He, did, he, he understood he I didn't don't, want to be running around getting his feet cut.
1: At up. the risk of, yeah, I don't know that it works with Sinatra. And it, Willis is like 35, right?
3: So when he was adapting the novel the screenwriter, the, the first screenwriter to develop the project, Jeb Stewart, he had this eureka moment because he he was a young guy. He was about the eight he was like in his mid thirties. He'd had an argument with his wife. He had a he had a young uh, couple of young kids trying to provide for his family, dealing with those kind of life stresses. Had an had a big argument because he was stressed out, nearly had an accident on the freeway, nearly died. Luckily he didn't, and that was his light bulb moment where he was like this is not about a 65-year-old guy. This is about a 35-year-old guy who had an argument with his wife, should have said sorry, didn't, and then really bad shit happened.
1: I love that because it's like the, the like sort of impetus or the seed for the movie is so relatable to anyone who like lives a normal life. He's like, oh, I got to provide my family. I got to do all these things. Like, It sort of grounds the movie in reality, which at the end of the day, the whole story is kind of about a guy reconciling with his wife. And through sort of an extraordinary circumstance and situation, and
3: to this point, I mean, when they were exploring the earlier version of it before they made that realization, they had gone. They were looking at the older action stars like Clint Eastwood and right. Paul Newman, who I think turned it down because he'd pr- pretty much done something similar in Towering Inferno, running around a building that was on fire, and a lot of the imagery from Towering Inferno. I th- actually, oh, actually, there's an interesting story about that because. Roderick Thorpe saw *Towering Inferno*. Had a dream about being pursued by gunmen in a skyscraper, and then conceived. Nothing lasts forever.
1: *Die Hard* is sort of based on a nightmare that Roderick Thorpe had after seeing *The Towering Inferno*. Have you ever seen *The Towering Inferno*? Yes. I've never seen it.
3: I watched it. I watched it recently to to place it in this context. It's it. Look, it's a completely different story. It actually, in my opinion, it feels very. There's certain movies from the seventies. Even like one that's directly relevant, taking taking a 2, one, two, three that came out the same year. Great movie. That feels super contemporary, whereas Tower and Inferno to me feels very dated. Sort of, of dated. Its time. Yeah. It's a very kind of like unhip movie. Yeah. But the only I would say the only DNA that made its way in. She so got the skyscraper, you know, fire, a fiery skyscraper, and helicopters, and the building itself has a kind of personality in the way that Nakatomi Plaza does. But there are some specific—it's almost like a
1: character, in a the character movie.
3: in the movie, yeah. And and w- there are some specific shots in Towering Inferno of like the elevator shafts that are almost directly in Die Hard. And so it's 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 not a direct influence in terms of story shape or anything like that, or characters. But I think it's it was it was a certainly a direct influence on Roderick Thorpe.
1: Huh. Cool. So Phil. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie?
3: What a what! a, This is a huge kind of this. Is, I've got a huge detailed deposition about this. Yes, of course. Yes, it, it fucking is, it's is a Christmas movie. Of course, I don't understand it is. This
1: conversation. A, <laughs> it makes no sense. Yes, of course. Who's it having ends this
3: with debate? No. Who is having this debate? Who thinks differently? And right, the Run
1: this, DMC song. Yeah, okay, exactly. moving on. Moving. Let's on. wrap
3: up this. So, although Die Hard was actually nominated for. For, for Oscars, action movies rarely receive recognition from the Academy, what might be considered the major category. So we want to put things straight and have our own Action Movie Academy Awards, our, our, aka the Die Hard
1: Oscars. Let's wrap this up with the Die Hard Oscars. Yes. Do we, we need to put on shirts and tuxedos? But <laughs> we just keep wearing the clothes. It's casual. One. you think it's casual? It's oh, casual. Cool. It's a casual yeah. award. It's like the early it's Academy Awards where everybody was drunk and it was on like yeah. a Sunday afternoon. All right, right. I'll, I'll kick us off. So here's what we're going to do. We got four awards. We're going to go one by one. We'll list the nominees, winners for this category. We have not discussed this before, so let's see what we get out of it. Okay. The first Oscar, uh, Die Hard Oscar, the John McClane Yippie Kaye Motherfucker Award for Best Singer. What's the best singer in this movie? I mean...
3: I'm big. Uh, the, the nominees for me would be No Shit Lady. Does it sound like I'm ordering, ordering a, a pizza? Fucking, yeah, yeah. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. ho, ho. Okay. Of course, yippee ki motherfucker. Shoot the glass. That's a good but one. My personal favorite.
1: Is that a zinger? Is shoot the glass a zinger? Mm,
3: yeah, you're right. That's a good question. Is, is it Because it's ineligible? not like a...
1: Pl- I don't think it's... I think it's... I, I think, and this is a good talk, a zinger is sort of a, a line that finishes a scene or yeah. li- lifts a the humor, a button, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. it's a button. And shoot the glass, yeah. though it is arguably my favorite line in the movie, I don't think constitutes a zinger. I think Great your point. other choices are zingers. Great I think point. they're really, really good. That's,
3: shoot the glass has been canceled. My personal favorite, my vote would go to uh, the line that's actually also in the book, albeit in a different place in the film, Geronimo, motherfucker.
1: But does he say, Geronimo? Mother- it's when he
3: throws the, the chair down. Oh, that's good. <laughs> the chair of explosives. I have to
1: Simple. go, it's obvious, but I have to go with come out to the coast, we'll have a few laughs. Classic one. Great line. choice. The Hans Gruber Exceptional Thief Award for scene stealing.
3: My nominees are, of course, Hans Gruber.
1: Sure. Which I'll, one? Which scene? Just every scene. I think the Bill Clay scene. That's a pretty good scene scene. Yeah, yeah, that's next level acting. Oh,
3: God! We're doing a German, doing an American accent, you know, but it still has some of the German in it. It's pretty sophisticated, you know, pole vaulting. Hans Gruber, Al Powell, Uli the Candy Thief. Uli the Candy Thief. The SWAT cop who gets cut by the thorn, and Argyle. Go, I want to hear your choice. I think it's, I mean, he's the, the clue's in the name. It's got to be just Gruber. I think it's Gruber. I think stealing. you're right. I think that is the scene of scene-stealing just like next level crazy gymnastics as an actor.
1: I'm going to go with every scene that Theo is in. Actually, I'm going to give you a very specific example. I think when he's when he's defensive coordinating, that's a really great scene. But I think the, the most scene-stealing moment in the movie is one of the funniest when Gruber says, now you can hack the vault. And he says, you didn't bring me along for my charming personality, which is like such a great, I immediately know who this guy is line. So that's my pick. The Dick Thornburg Award for Dick of the Movie. So our nominees
3: are Dick Thornburg himself, Dwayne T. Robinson, Ellis, Agent Johnson a Special Agent Johnson, and the LAPD dispatcher who tries to cite
1: McLean for misuse of the police radio. Ooh, very good. What's your pick? For this one, I think it's Dwayne Robinson. Well, Phil, I this have a question, be... though. Can it be anyone besides Dick Thornburg if the award is, <sighs> na- the award is named Did after you him? She put me on
3: the spot. I? I was just trying to be clever, but I yeah. think I think you're right that maybe, you know. You think but, it be but, Dick Thornburg? It, but this is an unusual action movie in the sense that there's just a plethora of dicks. There's a
1: lot of dicks in this movie. <laughs> My pick is not Dick Thornburg, it's Harvey. The newscaster because which i we didn't god there's so much talking about this movie but the the newscast stuff is brilliant it's like paul Verhoeven satire level good but my favorite bit is when he says stockholm is in norway as no in, what does he say as in helsinki no, what he sweden say? what does he say yeah he <laughs> says it's in sweden and the and the guy's like finland <laughs> it's just great dick dickish idiot behavior also Eat it, Harvey, and then Harvey's like staring death eyes at Thornburg, and he's live on the ten o'clock news. It's just, it's great. Best death award.
3: Our nominees for the best death are Tony's neck break, ooh, Marco being shot in the boardroom under the table, yeah, the FBI guy's helicopter crash, Al Powell killing Carl, and ooh. Hans Gruber's fall.
1: So did you did you have a pick? Yeah. Oh, it's Marco. Oh, it's absolutely Marco. I think. I actually now think this conversation has led me to believe that Marco getting shot on, uh, f- from under the table is my favorite moment in the entire movie. Because I am so into how fucking unhinged Marco, no more table. <laughs> like it's just loses his mind. And I, I just, th- that might be my favorite scene in the movie. And a great zinger. Thanks for the advice. After Agreed. he's blown him to, pa- to pieces.
3: Your pick? I think I've got to go with hands before that shot. The music is amazing. The the, yeah, his expression and the technical achievement of that shot. You know, it looks so real and it is so real, and the acting is real, and it's just an it's it's a haunting death, and even reappears in Die Hard with Avengers. They
1: they re-show that moment. Yeah, which is one of my favorite moments in Die Hard. Stays with you. Okay.
3: Just because I really want to say this, that now it's time to play double jeopardy trivia, fun facts quiz. So you're okay. going to quiz me, and I, I'm going to quiz you. Yes, I'm going to quiz you. This is this This interview is over. This is where the scores can really change. Which notable director was offered the movie first? I can give Paul you a... Verhoeven. Yes, nailed it. Wow, that's, that's thank you. Do you have any impressive. idea
1: why he didn't do
3: it? I think he was just getting offered everything. Well, it's Robocop. also
1: interesting that Jan de Bont shot it, which yeah. would make me think that maybe Paul Verhoeven brought him on and then yeah. Jan de Bont hung Well,
3: him. actually McTiernan loved the fourth man, apparently, so he, he loved that style. Who doesn't love yeah. the fourth man? When, when he got the part in Die Hard, Bruce Willis was primarily known as a television actor, but which other 80s TV stars were purportedly offered the role of John McClane?
1: You have a great the guy you never see but ask the questions on trivia shows. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to let you know. Um, uh, Paul Newman? Uh, a TV actor. Oh, TV so actors. Eighties TV actors. Can I? Uh, can I? Can Just I? Like
3: throw one a hint. Guess. One hint. Actually, Bruce Willis was in a show with one of these guys that was a very Cybill popular. Shepherd. Not. <laughs> that would have been an interesting choice. <laughs> wow! Oh, I'd watch the hell out of them. that. There movie. Was a certain show set in Florida about cops?
1: Miami Vice. Wait, who? Who was it? Don Johnson. Don Johnson and. MacGyver, Richard
3: Dean Anderson, apparently in the running. Which, Ri- which he's too, um, he's too
1: clean. Richard Dean Anderson's too clean to kill all these. But guys he, he would have been, been good with
3: the gizmos. He would have
1: been good with the gizmos. But it's not the same. It's just not the same. No, it it would have been Ugh. not great. I love Richard Dean Anderson. All right.
3: Which Australian actor, who would later play the lead in another huge summer blockbuster, was apparently approached about the role of Hans Gruber first? Paul Hogan. <laughs> No, I'm just
1: kidding. It's not The Crocodile Hunter. It's not The Crocodile Hunter. Australian actor had a big role in... Another
3: huge summer blockbuster that came out, I'll, tell, I'll give you the clue, in 1993.
1: Oh, shit. I, I'm really annoyed because I feel like I, I I'm, you're going to tell me this and I'm going to be very angry at myself. Who? Sam Neill. Sam Neill was offered a part. I don't know the... if he was
3: offered, but he was approached. So that's kind of interesting. To play John John McLean, to play Gruber, to play Gruber. Okay, you can kind of see that. You can totally see it. it. Yeah, you can see it, right? I mean, look, no, Richmond's untouchable, but
1: I mean, there's like it would be a softer, it'd be a softer kind of performance. But he played Damien in the Omen. He played Damien in the Omen, and he's in Possession, which you've never seen. Possession is one of the most wild movies ever made. Okay. All right,
3: last two. Which diehard actor has a close relative who is also in The Detective? I have no idea. Hart Bochner, who plays Ellis. His dad, Lloyd, has a great role.
1: I thought of Ellis. I thought of Ellis, but I was like, I was trying to think like Hollywood royalty and anything like that. Damn it!
3: And our last one, um, the Pacific Courier logo, which is on the terrorist truck, also features in two other notable action movies, both from the 1990s. It's kind of an in-joke from the production designer. Can you guess either of those?
1: Well, I would imagine that they would have to be LA set movies, right? They actually, one
3: of them is...
1: One I'm looking la- I'm looking at our notes from later on. Is One Lethal Weapon too? No. Good guess. Speed. Speed. It's in Speed, and it's
3: also in Die Hard with a Vengeance.
1: Oh. It's one of the trucks that blows up, up at the beginning. That's one of the great New York movies. Well, it's clear we don't like Die Hard. Yeah. It's unfortunate. That we're not much to talk about. Warm film. No, it's great. It's the great... It really is like, are we going to be able to top this? Talking about a million other action movies, because well, this is the great action movie. I am time. so
3: excited to talk about it because I love action movies... Good, bad, ugly. I love, I love them all. I want to treat them all with the same love, you know, level of love and respect. Um, not everyone is, not every episode is going to be like this, where there's this much depth. But Die Hard is the daddy. It deserves it. It deserves this kind of this kind of discussion of a deep dive, I think. And I could not be more excited to go on that, on this adventure, on this exploration journey with you to look at how Die Hard's DNA found its way into all these other incredible action movies. Some, some are bona fide classics and we have talked about some of them already there's but actually the 80s and the 90s in particular was a real golden age for, day of action for action movies, movies. and yeah. we're going to get into them all one by one and we're going to track how die hard's dna uh, affected them and ran through ran through the genre
1: fantastic i love it well phil this has been a blast it's good to see you as always uh we'll be back next time with some new fbi <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's that's great it's great i all love right. it we'll be back next time with some new fbi guys Die Hard on a Blank is a podcast created and hosted by Philip Gawthorne. Liam Billingham co hosts and produces the show. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Die Hard O A B. Rate, review, follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Most importantly, tell your movie podcast loving friends about Die Hard on a Blank. Special thanks to Suki Chu. See you next time on Die Hard.